and a very happy new year to you indeed. Welcome along to the January 2020 edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave, and coming up, I'll be finding out some of the winter activities that JW3 has in store, including speaking to our very own Raymond Simonson, the chief executive, about the JW3 ice rink. And I'm Tony Honigberg, and I will be talking to Alan Dean, who is a historian, author, and broadcaster, and he's got a programme coming up at JW3 called the Petticoat Lane Foxtrot. And this is all about jazz from the East End. I'm Kate Fulton, and I'm going to be talking to Jordan B. Gorfinkel, or Gorf as he's known to his friends, who is a former editor of DC Comics, where he managed the Batman franchise. And he is an incredible artist, cartoonist, and actually an amazing singer as well. But I'm going to be talking to him about his comics, what he does, and about the Haggadah he has created in picture form. Look forward to that. And I'm Clive Roslin, and I'll be speaking to Rabbi David Mason of Muswell Hill Synagogue, all about sleeping out in Trafalgar Square to raise awareness of the awful things that are happening at the moment where so many people are rough sleeping. And new for 2020, we'll be hearing monthly from our Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. And this month will be absolutely no exception. We'll find out what Denise has in store a little later on. And as if all of that isn't enough, we will also have our rabbinic thought for the month, which comes from Rabbi Danny Rich from Liberal Judaism UK. But before that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Anti-Semitic graffiti was daubed on a synagogue and several shops in North London during Hanukkah. The Star of David and 9-11 was spray-painted in Hampstead and Belsize Park and on South Hampstead Synagogue, which is in Eaton Avenue, NW3. 9-11, it's believed, could be a reference to a conspiracy theory that Jews were responsible for the World Trade Centre attacks 18 years ago. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, said that anti-Semitism had no place anywhere, and certainly not in London. The Met Police have made no arrests, but have said officers will be on patrol throughout the area to reassure local communities. It came as a 37-year-old man pleaded not guilty in the United States to five counts of attempted murder after he barged into a rabbi's home in Monsey, New York State, with a machete and wounded five people who were celebrating the seventh night of Hanukkah. Despite his family's claims that Grafton Thomas was mentally ill and not an anti-Semite, police found his phone's browser history showed searches relating to Nazis, Jews and synagogues. At least one of the victims is in a serious condition. The new Conservative government will make it illegal for public bodies to boycott Israel. The policy was unveiled in the Queen's speech. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said it would stop local authorities, in effect, developing their own pseudo-foreign policy against countries, which all too frequently means Israel. The Hartsmere MP, Oliver Dowden, said such boycotts divide communities and sow hatred. Around 400 people gathered at Buckingham Palace for a pre-Hanukkah reception, which was organised by the Prince of Wales to celebrate the UK's Jewish community's contribution to all areas of life in this country. Guests came from organisations around the UK with a focus on those who do community work and volunteering. In an immensely warm and well-received speech, the Prince said that the connection between the Crown and the Jewish community is something special and precious and that Jews have immeasurably enriched the health, wealth and happiness of the United Kingdom.
And finally, jewelers in New York City have created the world's most valuable dreidel. That's according to the Guinness World Records. The custom-designed piece has been valued at $70,000, which is about £54,000. The Art Deco-style piece has white gold letters and more than 220 round, brilliant diamonds with a 4.2-carat diamond on its tip. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, here we are. First Jewish views of 2020. And my goodness me, what an end of the year it was. Very, very festive for one and all, I'm quite sure. Whatever you were celebrating, we hope to enjoy it. For me, personally, I don't know about you two, but I just absolutely love the festive time of year. But it also, in the same time, I find it quite depressing because I think to myself, oh, heck, another year is over with. Have I done everything I needed to? But if I put that to one side and actually look at the positives... I actually really like how multicultural this country has become. The fact that some households, whether you approve of it or not, have Christmas trees and next to them have Hanukkahs. Well, I, a long time ago, way back when the haham of the Sephardi synagogue, Dr. Gaon, who was the most marvellous man, he, every Christmas day, had a beautifully kosher turkey. Always. Kosher, of course. Of course. Absolutely. I don't see anything... Well, we don't have a Christmas tree. We have a Hanukkah, but we, we tend we to... We have a Christmas tree. Yes. We, have, we have a Hanukkah bush. We don't have yeah, a Christmas tree. Actually, I'm, I'm probably too old-fashioned and getting too old, but I do not think that Jews should have Christmas trees. No. I mean, all my family do, except for me. Well, yeah. look, I think the problem is that it's if you associate it with a religious Christian festival then absolutely you could argue there is no point whatsoever in Jews having Christmas trees. But to anyone that I have spoken to, and I'm sorry, my family is included in this, you know, we absolutely do have one, and proudly so, and there's a couple of reasons why we do it. Number one, we respect the fact that we are in, by and large, first and foremost, a Christian country. It is tradition in this country that at December time, Christmas time, people put up Christmas trees and they celebrate Christmas, okay? It is just a done thing in this country. Now, that doesn't mean to say that you have to suddenly become Christian, but it does mean that you can do something to respect traditions that have been upheld in this country for a very long time. And may I just say the second reason, sorry, sorry, the second reason is because actually it is by and large a pagan festival. It's not actually Christian. No, that's what I was going to say. First of all, the Christmas tea was brought into this country by Prince Albert in the Victorian From Germany, that's right. It was German tradition. It's a German idea. And the second thing is that Jesus Christ, whether you're a religious Christian or not, was not born at this time of no. the year. It was originally a pagan festival to but, celebrate the middle of winter. Of course, going back, if you look at when Jesus was born, if, you, if the story has it, the Mary was on her way to Bethlehem because of the new year, because you had to register yourself every new year. So if he was born near the new year, he would have been born in September sometime. Exactly, and the great thing is, the fascinating thing is, that the three, st- the three wise men saw the stars. Those stars can't be seen at this time of yeah. year. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And so the, it's, only, the only reason that she didn't check herself into the Booper Hospital is because it was closed for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like this time of year. I go out and so. In fact, I was on a Christmas lunch with with some work colleagues, and you know, we had a few drinks and something to eat. And I took a long some uh, kosher mince pies from one of the Jewish bakers in Edgware. And I must tell you, all my non-Jewish friends. I have to buy these mince pies every year. They say they are the best mince pies they have ever tasted. 
Well, they, well, they would be. They would be. They're kosher mince pies. Kosher, of course. Yeah. As I have long suspected, nobody does Christmas like the Jews. But there we go. It is a new year. It starts right here. We, we this... should sing the song, shouldn't we? Have yourselves a Jewish little Christmas. Well, quite. <laughs> if not already for the year that's just gone, but maybe for later this year. But one way or another, we do hope you enjoy the festive period. And welcome to the start of what promises to be a bumpy year for the Jewish views. And another year older. Oh, don't say that. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, I have taken a little breather from our mini studio set up in the foyer of JW3 because I have come to brave the elements that London has to offer. Oh, yes, I'm outdoors, but I'm not the only one braving the elements. I am joined by the gun Samacher of JW3 himself, the head honcho, the numero uno, the grand fromage, and all of the other ones you want to give him the titles that you would like to give. But of course, his correct title is chief executive of JW3. That is Raymond Simons. And Raymond, welcome to the Jewish Views. And what a way to start the year. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. If you could come with me everywhere before I uh, step onto stage anywhere, that would be great. I think I should, actually, yeah. I'll 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 do that. Done. Thank you very much. Yeah, welcome back to JW3. Lovely to see you again. Hope you had a good Hanukkah. It's spot on, thank you very much indeed. And I hope that your 2020 has got off to a flying start. But speaking of flying starts, we're hoping that not too many people at JW3 will have a flying start because we're here right by the JW3 ice rink. And that's why we have come outdoors, is to chat a little bit about this. I suppose the obvious question has got to be, why does JW3 have an ice rink? Yes, that is the question we get asked a lot at this time of year. What's so Jewish about an ice rink is what people often say. And uh, yes, I have only one corny joke answer, which is we're trying to show that we're the frozen people and not the chosen people. Yep, my kids are going to hate the dad joke that I've just said. But uh, we are known for having a lot of intellectually stimulating activity, a lot of Jewish content, a lot of art content, a lot of worthy, you know, high-end kind of content. But we also want to be known for stuff that is just fun, that brings people together with no other agenda than just coming in, doing something at this time of year. I think particularly after the last few months for the community and for the country where we've been focused on so many negative, difficult things, just being able to come in here, meet very different kinds of people of different backgrounds and do something fun, that's one of the reasons. The second reason is it's very invitational. When people walk past who have never been here before, who think, oh, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not Jewish or oh, I don't really do uh, artsy stuff or I don't do, you know, Jewish content. And then they see the lights and they hear the music and they see through the glass window that there's everyone skating down here. And they go, okay, I I, I can do that. I can go into that. It's like the gateway drug. They come in here and have a little taste of the ice skating, pick up a brochure, see what else is going on and hopefully fall in love with the place. It's exactly the same way online we have clickbait. This is a sort of people bait for JW3. This is click skate. There you go. There's two, two terrible dad jokes in a row. Heaven help me. Okay. Right. (laughs) So, in all seriousness, though, I think there will be some people, a bit like myself included with this, who would love to know how it is actually possible that in this weather, which, okay, it's a bit nippy, but it's not exactly sub-zero out here, how on earth is it possible that an ice rink stays icy? Right. So, if you think about it a bit like the opposite of your radiators at home, So in your radiators, you have these pipes that go up and down, zigzagging through, and they carry boiling hot water through, and it fills up the radiator. You touch the radiator, you'll burn yourself. Very similar here. Underneath the ice, what's built first is a whole network of these pipes that go up and down, and they are carrying ice-cold water that's mixed with chemicals that comes from these generators at the back there. They go up and down there. They they create a very icy-cold layer at the bottom. 
Then what happens, and this is the, the bit that always amuses me in the year 2020, you know, with the advances in modern technology, the way that the ice rink is built is a very old-fashioned method. This, this layer goes on the bottom, and then for about five days, a bloke and a hosepipe stand there, you know, sprinkling water, builds up an inch of water, leaves it to freeze. Once it's frozen, build up another inch or so of water, and that goes on and on over many hours, over five days, until you have about 15 or 20 inches of very thick ice and it stays cold like that the whole way. And at the very end, when everyone's gone home, when this finishes, all the generators get turned off and the ice is left to melt. And what's wonderful is all the ice here melts and it gets collected underneath the JW3 Piazza and recycled. It gets flushed into our toilets and gets used. So it's all recycled. Oh, fantastic. So not only is it an ice rink, it's a green ice rink. It's a, it's a green ice rink. Very good. Excellent. Okay, well... That's it. But it sounds like it takes such a long time, of course. So, I mean, this is only on for a month. If, By the way, if you are listening to this, you've only got to the 5th of January before the ice rink finishes for the season. So if you haven't been yet, please do hurry up. Look, it's, it's worth the effort for us, right? It's a big project. It takes a lot of time. In order to do it, you know, people think maybe this makes us money. It doesn't make us money. This is something that we go out and get private sponsorship. And we're very grateful to Dare to Be for being our sponsors again this year. So please, big thank you to Dare to Be. Check them out. We put all the effort in because it brings together such a wide range of people. So over the last few weeks, we've had different haders and, U- and Jewish youth groups from reform synagogues, orthodox synagogues, you know, Chabad groups, local church groups. You can see right now, right, you can see people are, that are black, that are white, that are Jewish, that are Japanese, that are Indian. They're all skating at the same time. In fact, one of my favorite moments we've ever had on this ice rink, and, and it's a reminder to me, one of the reasons why we do it, is about two years ago... I was standing here, and there was a father, a Haredi father, wearing you know, black hat, sits, sits, payot. He had about six children, his children with him, and they were skating. And also on the ice were two couples. It looked like a double date. They were young Japanese couples in their early 20s, I think. One of the youngest kid in this Haredi family, must have been about five or six, kept slipping over, kept falling over on the ice. And at one point, he had this genius idea. And as his dad went past, the kid grabbed behind him, grabbed onto the dad's sit-sits, right, to balance, and skated round holding onto the dad's sit-sits. And these two Japanese couples, these four young Japanese people, whipped out their iPhones and started recording and taking photos. And they were talking to each other, and they were so excited. And I don't know what they said, but I'd love to think they were saying, oh, that's what the string's for. We've always wondered. In all truth, about half an hour later, and I was wandering through uh, our Zest Cafe, these Japanese couples were sitting, chatting to the Haredi dad. And I, I, I can't really say what they were talking about, but, but maybe this was the first time that they'd encountered and had a conversation with a very religious Jewish person. They wouldn't have come here to do that for an event that was on Torah or Talmud, but they came just to do something fun on the ice rink and ended up that culture of encounter that's so important nowadays. Now, I know that a lot of people would be forgiven for forgetting that actually that's a massive part of JW3's remit, of course, is to actually try and bring people together. Yes, first and foremost, a Jewish community center, but actually not exclusively for Jews. Right, exactly. So we are, we are open to all, as it says on all of our signs. We are a Jewish community center that's been built by the Jewish community for the Jewish community and for everyone else. We are one of the places that is open all year round where non-Jewish people can come in and encounter three-dimensional, living, breathing, thriving Jewish life. Now, over the last year, the only encounter that a lot of non-Jews have had with anything to do with Jewish has been through the prism of this whole anti-Semitism crisis and issue. So that means people have either thought about us either as victims, right, we're being othered and we're victims and the poor Jews, or, oh, those 
so-and-so Jews who are rich and powerful and are controlling the media and out to, out to get Jeremy Corbyn, whatever. And I'd love people to just encounter us through, you know, when we do the Jewish Comedy Festival, when we're having Hanukkah Funukkah, or when we've got an ice rink, and just come in and, and just enjoy it and be part of what we do here. Well, maybe one place that they could actually encounter other Jews is when they come to another event that's coming up. If you're going to miss out on the ice rink, don't worry, because there is more winter stuff to come from JW3. Is that not right? Right, yes. Our final event, we've had a really busy season through December and January with loads going on for Hanukkah that's all gone. We've got one final big winter event left, which is on January the 19th. We have our annual winter family disco and that's for everyone kids of all ages to come along and just have fun schools will have just gone back you know a week or so before the winter blues will have set in so just come down bring the kids and have fun at jw3 well that sounds like a great mantra to me but as ever i think we need to remind people where they need to go if they want any more information on the ice rink which as i mentioned does end on the 5th of january or indeed the family disco on the 19th where do they go what do they do it's all just that jw3.org.uk you can check out what's going on there I would always recommend people to register give us your email address give us permission to contact you and let you know what's going on or better still if you want to be the first one to know about certain events and to get priority booking on a number of events that sell out very quickly then just become a JW3 member which is pretty cheap and it gives you a discount on so many of the events we do but it gives you priority booking on a whole load of events and you can find that all on jw3.org.uk well, Raymond Simonson, Chief Executive of JW3, I think it is high time I went to go and practice my headbanger. Not you, though. You've done your wrist in, so I shall let you get back to it. And I will say thank you very much indeed for joining us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, and Happy New Year. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. On countless occasions, we've spoke about the affiliation that our community has had with the music world. What happens if you start focusing on a particular genre? Let's say jazz. How many Jewish jazz musicians could you name? Well, lucky you don't have to. You don't have to rattle your brains too much, as our next guest will be helping us all to understand the era just a little bit better. Alan Dean is a historian, an author, and a broadcaster, and he'll be hosting the Petticoat Lane Foxtrot right here at JW3 on Thursday, the 30th of January, and I'm delighted to say Alan joins us here now. Hello. Hello, Alan, and welcome. Thank you for coming along. Oh, it's great. Lovely to be with you. Before we start talking about the Petticoat Lane Foxtrot, can we go back to all those eras? What made you interested in all those jazz, they weren't necessarily, well, it was jazz of a sort, but just those Jewish musicians out of the East End? I've always been passionate about music. I grew up listening to music, mostly pop music. And as I got older and I sort of started to explore different kinds of sounds, it was definitely the kind of jazz and the big bands that intrigued me. I think it's because, obviously, there's such a fantastic portal, a window into a past world, particularly the kind of music that I've been exploring in this project. The music seems to sort of really kind of capture the atmosphere the life of particularly london in the interwar years the jewish east end and even jewish soho the west end the dance halls all that kind of scene which was such a sort of kind of invigorating time for people who were mostly working very hard and needed time to just let off steam 
and music was the best way of so doing it was that. great it was great for the general public but it was also great for the the musicians as well because a lot of these guys i, I think were, were were on the jewish wedding scene weren't they you know the the Bert ambrose loose stone johnny franks those sort of people but then they moved into the commercial world to record indeed you know, some of the musicians on music is the most beautiful language in the world the yiddish foxtrot the you know this kind of what, what, what is what's so interesting is that some of the some of the musicians were what i would call already incredibly well known in their field so we take someone like Bert Ambrose or Lou Stone these were band leaders who were as well known in their day as the Beatles and the Rolling Stones were going to be in the 1960s these were household names and they obviously coincided with the birth of radio so once radio discovers jazz, then the, that sound starts to kind of be listened to around Britain. And, and do you think with, with all these guys doing the jazz, there was a definite Jewish element to the jazz music? You know, the, the, if you like, the Chazanot coming through or the Eastern European Kletzmas sort of thing coming through in those days. I think it's a very good point. There's definitely something specific about those musicians and the kind of music they were playing. And I agree. I think it, they brought a lot from their own backgrounds. And certainly the kind of music that you're mentioning, both the kind of the Jewish cantoral kind mm. of music, the kind of things they would hear in synagogue, but also, of course, the kind of music they would hear at weddings and functions, which had more of what we now call more of a kind of klezmer feel about them. And there was definitely a kind of amalgamation of that, both of those kind of genres and both those kind of musical experiences and then of course there's the big band music in jazz which was such a huge influence because it just it really burst out you know if we're looking at the period just after the first world war with the foxtrot and the charleston and the kind of period just a bit after that we are really looking at a music revolution and of course that's what if you're a musician that's what you were going to get a bit out of you know you that's what you wanted did a lot, a lot of their inspiration, although Eastern European and, like say, cantoral and general London East End, but did a lot of their inspiration come from America as well? Because, of course, you've got the Jewish jazz writers and bands in America. Definitely. I think America, without a doubt, has a huge influence. And I think it's very different aspects of American culture. There's American Yiddish culture, the Yiddishkeit culture of America, which is very much the life of Yiddish theatre, for example. Lots of Yiddish theatre was also about music and song. So there was lots of songs being written. So music was very much part of that kind of Yiddish world. And it's, the, it's the, what I would call the secular Yiddish world as opposed to the, 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 the high Jewish world yeah. of, of cantoral music and mu- the kind of music you would hear in, in the synagogue choir and so forth. All these great these great cantors of old who were like stars in mm. their own right, weren't they? You know, these, these they were cantors that people would queue round the block just to listen to their voices. But, but then that was more operatic rather than jazz big band style, which was more for the people. Absolutely. And people could dance to it. You can't dance to operatic music so well. <laughs> you can't dance to it, but you can obviously get a lot out of it for its musicality. And, and I think that it was an influence, even though, as you say, obviously the, the kind of music that I'm being 
intrigued by and I've been exploring has been the music, which is very much the sort of dance music, the music that is inspired by dance and jazz. But going back to your question about America, I think it's a very interesting question because, of course, what is important, and particularly in the 1920s, is that what is happening is that a lot of the music is coming across through records. So you've got musicians coming from America, but also the records, and the records are being sold in the shops. And a lot of shops, particularly in the East End of London, were specialising in imports, the red-hot sounds of jazz and the kind of dance music that was going to become such an influence to the kind of musicians that we're talking about. How does all this reflect on the evening? Tell us a bit more about that. Well, uh, what I'm going to do... It's, it's, it's a kind of one-man band, but it's not really, because I want to have a few special guests as well. But the idea of the evening is that I'm going to be talking about the music, I'm going to be playing a lot of the music, and also I'm going to be presenting through a kind of whizzy PowerPoint. I've got to just thumbs up to my son, Abe, who, who is a really artistic master of the PowerPoint. So we've got some very good visuals, lots of photographs of the, of the bands, lots of photographs of the record sleeves, the sheet music, and also the streets of the area. So to really capture it, I think the pictures are important. But also what I'm hoping to do, and I've got a couple of thumbs up from various special guests, and the special guests are going to be people who are either descendants of some of the musicians that I'm going to be talking about, or people who were very much involved in the music of that time, or their families were. Because I thought I would do a little bit of interviewing live on stage, ask them to come up and talk a little bit about... The their, story, their parents, or whatever. Exactly. So I'm very. Uh, one person who said definitely, I'm really up for it. Is Ruth Frank, Johnny's who's, who's daughter. the daughter of yeah. Johnny, who played and performed. She performed with Johnny. Oh, did and she? I didn't know that. She she was a child prodigy. And she told me some fascinating stuff because she's from a musical family and Johnny got her into music very early and she went on stage and went out and performed with him and so she knows a lot of his numbers. So we're, uh, Ruth is going to be talking a little bit about her father and playing some music. She's a great pianist, so she's going to be playing some pieces. Fantastic. So that, that's going to be great. I'm looking forward to that. That's brilliant. Because you, you, I mean, we spoke about Johnny Franks and Lou Stone and all, all those others. Yes. But you had, like, comedy, comedy music, a bit like Max Bacon, who... You know, did something called the Bible song, I remember. Well, I don't remember it, but I've heard it, you know. <laughs> but he was sort of... Yeah, he was just a comedy element, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah th- uh, let's face it. Jewish, Yiddish culture and comedy go hand in hand. And obviously a lot of this music is beautifully performed and, and the musicians are yes. superb. But they're also funny people. And Max Bacon was a funny guy. He had a split personality. He was also one of the greatest jazz drummers of his day. Yes. Yes. He wrote the first book on jazz drumming in the 1930s, Max on Swing. But also, he could have a laugh. He knows, so to be the drummer of the Rolls-Royce of dance bands, of Ambrose, you had to be good. good. That's right. Very well, he, good. Wasn't he sort of really the British Mickey Katz? Yeah. That sort of thing, wasn't it? Because Mickey Katz also was a good musician. Indeed. But was also a comic. And I, I think comedy was very important. I think, and I think one of the, the, the lovely things about this project has been unearthing some of the funny numbers, you know, and, it, and great songs like Muzzle, which has got yes. a really, really humorous edge to sure. it as well. So, uh, fabulous. Well, Alan, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Now, let's just go back. It's sure. on called the Petticoat Lane Foxtrot. Yep. Here at JW3, and it's on the 30th of January, and we're all looking forward to seeing that one. And I'm really looking forward to 
performing, presenting, and more significantly, seeing the audience and the crowd. Because I think also what I really want is if we can get up and dance as well, that would be great. But it would be really fabulous to be able to get a little bit of participation, memories, stories. Because I think one of the great things about this music is that it really does capture people's imagination. It really it takes people back on a journey. You know something? I think the people that will come and see this are the people that want the music. And they, I think they'll be dancing in the aisles. <laughs> Let's just tell everybody that it's on, again, 30th of January. It starts at 7.30 in the evening. Alan, thank you very much for coming to see us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, time for something a little bit different. We've covered already the musical arts on this episode of The Jewish Views. Well, why not let's now cover the illustrated arts. Kate Fulton has been speaking to one Jordan Gorfinkel, or Gorf as he likes to be known. He is actually a cartoonist, an artist and former editor of the Batman cartoons. I know, very exciting. Unfortunately, it wasn't me who got to meet him, it was Kate instead. So she went along and she had a chat with Gorf and started by asking him about his background. My background is that I was the editor of Batman Comics for the better part of a decade. And during that period of time, I created stories that became the basis for multimedia production. So we did comic books and graphic novels, but also animated television shows, movies, games, Six, Fly, Six Flag Great America rides, apparel, everything you can imagine. And I've since gone to apply that to telling stories that combine my two favorite loves, comics and Judaism. I want to hear about that. I'm just going to rewind a bit. What was your inspiration to, because you're an artist, and I've seen the tie that you were wearing, that amazing tie with like a million different cartoons on, which kind of gave us a clue, and the badge with the, with the musical note, which we'll come on to as well. But what was your inspiration to start you off with, with your artist work, artistry? Oh, very simple. My inspiration for starting off was that I was an introverted, overweight child who sat around watching a lot of TV and reading a lot of comic books. How's that? <laughs> Interesting, but that doesn't necessarily make you artistic, though. No, but it certainly sets me up for the stillness that I need, referencing your previous episode, in order to be able to have that 10,000 hours to become at least reasonably decent. I like to say that I've gone from being an artist who is bad to being competent. I don't believe that for one second. What, so what did you start off drawing? I mean, where did the superheroes thing come from? Sure. Well, I started drawing on desks. Lots of desks, much to the chagrin of all of my instructors. But I learned that education for me was best achieved by moving my hand. And whereas other people saw distraction, for me it was a focusing mechanism. And when I was a kid, I read, obviously, uh, quite a bit of uh, science fiction, fantasy, and superhero yarns and so forth. And when I got older, I never really grew up, but as I got larger, I fell into it as a profession. And anybody who knew me when I was a child would have said that I would have become one of two things. Either I would have become a comic book artist or a lawyer. So I've sort of become both because anybody who works for themselves knows that you have to spend a lot of time getting the work and working up the contracts and being very savvy about the business aspect of artistry. So that way you can earn yourself maybe a couple of hours a day to actually be creative. So as you went through school, you decided, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be an artist. Did you do sort of formal art? What was your training in that way? 
Well, as I got through school, I decided that my first objective was to get out of school because I'm very objective oriented. I need a goal to reach in order to actually learn something. So I did study in university at Boston University, and I did one year of foundation arts work along with a degree, bachelor's of science in communications, which I like to call a little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing. And then I went from there in Boston to New York City, where I attended School of Visual Arts for a year, and then again figured out that I'm really not meant for school. I tempt for about a year or two. During that period of time, I met the woman who would become my wife, and I told her that I need to establish myself first as who I'm going to be before I can get married and, and be a proper union. Somehow or other, I managed to get her to stick around, and uh, actually, that's probably her fault that she stuck around. I, I won't take the full blame for that. Her name is Amy, by the way, and uh, she's the rock of my life because as unsettled as I am, she is extraordinarily focused and rooted. And from there, I became an intern. There's a long podcast that I can link you to to give you the full story, but I became an intern at DC Comics. And right when I was about to run out of money to buy macaroni for the last night that I could feed myself, I got offered two jobs, one of which was to be an assistant editor on the Batman franchise. And from there, Thankfully, I grew from being an assistant editor to being a full editor. And in 1999, calendar year 1999, all of the stories in the Batman continuity books came out of my head into the franchise, and it was known as Batman No Man's Land, became one of the basis for Christopher Nolan's film The Dark Knight Rises and the fifth season of TV's Gotham. Gosh, that's extraordinary. And you somehow have been linking that with your Judaism. How's that? Well, anybody who is a Shomer Shabbat or Sabbath observant Jew spends 24 hours of every single week sitting around, which is getting back to the stillness again. It's enforced stillness. And there are a couple things that you can do to pass the time. You can play board games. You can read comic books. So naturally, I gravitated towards the comic book side of it. At the same time, I was obviously going to a number of different Jewish schools. In the United States, we have different denominations. And although I'm a practicing Orthodox Jew by the vernacular, I like to eschew those kind of labels. Instead, say that I'm kind of a Jewish mutt, that I fit in everywhere. Because I moved around a lot as a kid, I went to schools that were public school, reform, conservative, Orthodox. And I wanted to be able to bring my love of authentic, original, unabridged Judaism to masses. And the best way to do that was to create a Sparks note or a Cliff Notes or Wikipedia, if you will, of Judaism. And in Judaism, what is that? That is the Passover Haggadah, the source text for the Passover Seder table ritual that is practiced by the vast majority of Jewish people and indeed outside of the Jewish faith as well around the world. So Across several years, I created a book called the Passover Haggadah graphic novel, because in branding, I believe in naming things so that you can understand exactly what they are. And thankfully, that was published by Koren Publishers in association with my company, Avalanche Comics Entertainment, last Passover. And it has been widely accepted and beloved. And let me give credit to the Israeli artist, Erez Sadok, who was part of my team to create this marvelous work that I hope will engage people in their Judaism. Well, I'm sure it will. And we'll look forward to, uh, to having a look at that. Maybe she'll get you back when it's, uh, when it's Pesach. No. Going back to Batman, though, there seems to be a relationship or some sort of similarity between these types of superheroes and 
I don't want to call them the Jewish superheroes, but the, the Moshe Rabbeinus, the great people of our time. And you, you, draw, you draw on these similarities. I have been privileged to travel around the world, literally, because right now I'm sitting in London on a sunny evening. That's a joke for anybody who's spent any time in London in the winter. And I've been speaking on topics that relate Jews and Jewish history to comics and Torah. And one of the speeches that I give, or I should say discussions or presentations that I give, is entitled Moses and Superman, what superheroes have to teach about Torah and what Torah has to teach about superheroes. So I'll give you a little taste. I begin by asking everybody, tell me who this story is about. There is a doomed society and a couple who has an orphan child, and they send this child away in a vessel to a foreign land where they're adopted by kindly people who don't know the origin of this boy. He grows up, and only after he becomes a full-fledged person does he discover the inner superpower that gives him the ability to be not only the savior of his people, but indeed a beacon of light and hope to the entire world. Who is the story about? We're not going to tell them, are we? We're going to let them think. All good stories in comics and graphic novel Torah stories have to have a cliffhanger, a little dangling thread. So you have to turn, tune in next Shabbos time, next Shabbos channel to find out the answer. I think that's absolutely right. We'll have to do that. You were talking about some, I don't want to call them secret Jewish messages, but you said sometimes in your comics there are messages, visual messages. What sort of things do you draw? Well, the idea is that you have the surface message and then you have the the perush, the interpretation. And hopefully if I do my job right, the fusion of words and pictures will allow everybody wherever they may be to understand what's going on. So if you have a cursory education, or you're coming to this for the first time, like a good Bugs Bunny cartoon, you can see the surface and understand just the simple meaning and enjoy the humor and the jokes and the history and all of that. But if you want to dig deeper, you can see that we've embedded into the fusion of words and pictures, deeper meanings and inner thoughts and interpretations and so forth. So like a good poem, once the poet has written it and put it out into the world, it's now up to the people who receive it to interpret it so I leave it at that and we'll have to leave it at that thank you so much Gorf if I can call it call you that now seeing as we we know each other we'll we'll have you back to tell us the uh, the secret if people haven't already guessed it cheers and if you want to reach me go to jewishcartoon.com slash tour or gorfy.com g-o-r-f-y.com that's gorf like frog backwards with a y at the end dot com You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. And our next guest was amongst a number of different faith leaders to sleep out in central London last month in a bid to raise awareness of homelessness. Rabbi David Mason of Muswell Hill Synagogue, along with Rabbi Herschel Gluck, president of the Jewish security group Shomrim, were just two of hundreds who endured chilly temperatures in Trafalgar Square. Now, why should we as Jews worry about this plight in society, and what could we be doing to help? Well, I'm delighted to say that Rabbi David Mason joins us now. Rabbi Mason, just answer that question. Why should we be doing something about homelessness as Jews? As Jews, we care a lot about those who are oppressed, 
this goes back to our foundation, right? The Exodus is the foundation story where we as a people were oppressed and God redeems us from that impression. And we're told that in a sense, the stranger, and that doesn't mean the stranger is a person, anyone who's estranged, who is oppressed, we, we would be there for them. I remember when I was studying to be a rabbi, my rabbi said that God's first commandment was, I'm the Lord your God that took you out of Egypt. But the word Egypt also means from straits, Meitzarim. And therefore, to imitate God, that's what we've got to do. We've got to take people out of the situations and recognize oppression when it exists. Now, what can we do practically? I know you slept in Trafalgar Square in very cold weather. It must have been absolutely awful. It was cold. It, was, it rained. I had an umbrella propped up so it rained. But it's hard in a way because when I walked back into Charing Cross Station to go home... I saw 25 individuals who were homeless sleeping in the Charing Cross underpass. What can be done about it, though? I think the first and most important thing we can do is awareness. We need to be aware. We need to encourage our own communities to be aware that there is a problem, the nature of the problem. How many people are sleeping rough? How many people are dying on the streets because of cold? How many children are in poverty? What types of vulnerability there. So I think that's the first thing, is clearly that we are aware. We can't be active about this unless we're aware. And then I think the second thing would be to then connect with charitable organisations uh, that work in the field, that are out in the field helping people who are homeless. And we were able to meet some of those charities at the, the World's Big Sleep Out. Is there, are there any Jewish people perhaps who, who are actually homeless and who are in a situation which is frightening. Yeah, I think there are. I think there, there are growing, especially as Jewish communities are focused a lot in London now, there are growing costs, rising costs in London. The cost of kosher food, the cost of sometimes things around schooling, even if children go to Jewish state schools. There are growing costs of synagogue membership. That will make lives difficult for a lot of our community. And for some, that may mean losing a home, losing a place. I know from stories I've heard from people I know who have met people who are suffering in that way and find it difficult to find a place. It is happening. Maybe not on a very large scale. I can't tell you the stats, but it, it is happening in our community. Now, how can more, more of us become aware of... I mean, you've just told us how important it is, but how many people are aware of helping the homeless I think people are I think you know I, I sense there's a growing with our media especially social media world it, you can't avoid it right it's something you can't necessarily avoid it's there on social media reports are pushed out regularly by childhood foundations by the Joseph Rantry foundations it's in front of our eyes a growing number of people that I know in my network are seeing it happen are understanding it's there, are writing about it, talking about it. We can't avoid seeing this. Right. Now, can I ask you how you got involved in all of this? So I got involved in the Sleep Out through the Faith Forums for London. Faith Forums for London is an organisation that brings together different faith groups. And through my work with them and my knowledge of them, I was asked to come in and be one of the Jewish representatives. And so I was initially a bit reticent, you know, like, well, I'm going to be sleeping out. It is a big undertaking. It was through the night. But I really was pleased that I did it, to meet people who were talking who were homeless, 
who have been homeless, to meet people who are also active in the field, and to meet other faith leaders and feel a sense of solidarity that across the faiths we care about this. And I slept, well, I didn't sleep very much, I suppose, but I was certainly there till the morning, I should say. <laughs> Where exactly were you? Were you in Trafalgar Square itself? You're in, on the square, they fenced it off. It was an event in a way. There was a pop singers like Tom Walker, the young would love that. My kids were very jealous that I was going to be hearing Tom Walker. Travis, more my generation, from Scotland, where I'm from, were there as well. So th- there was an event. You got in by having a ticket which was obviously money that would go to charity. And then from 10 o'clock, you were given a survivor bag. You had a a sleeping bag. You found a place and you slept. So actually, you you were better off than the actual homeless people. Well, you're better off in the sense that you go home. (laughs) You get at 6 o'clock and you go home and you've got a home to go to. What I did realise, though, was the sense that those who are sleeping rough won't sleep out in Trafalgar Square. They'll go into an underpass. You don't go and find people homeless in Trafalgar Square. You'll find them somewhere where it is a bit warmer, un- in an underpass. So perhaps... But, it's, it, but, but of course, they're still homeless. They still haven't got somewhere to go. They have less hope. I had hope, because I could go back yes. to my home. But so, it, in a way, it was, it, because it was an example of what was going on, you didn't meet any homeless people. The, I don't think the point of the event was to meet people who are homeless. I was very worried about, and I wrote this in the Jewish Chronicle, about tokenism. The idea, I'm going to go and sleep out with someone. Who, people that are homeless don't just want someone to come and sleep next to them and chat to them and, and, and ask them questions. They might not want that, right? That's invasion of the privacy of a person who may well be suffering. This wasn't how it is to be homeless. This was an event that raised awareness, which you could use modern techniques of awareness raising, which also allowed me to raise money. And I raised quite a few hundred pounds that would go to charities. And that was multiplied across the world. There were 50,000 people at least across the world who were doing the same thing at the same time. It's interesting. Of course, that makes sense. But it's interesting. I saw someone on television who was homeless and who said one of the worst things about being homeless was that there was nobody who understood, who wanted to talk to them and comfort them when they're lying in the street like that. I know. And I, I, I think that a lot, actually. I, I've been thinking recently about what I would send to my community. And one of the things I would want to write is what should one do? when one meets a person who's homeless there's often a stigma that homeless people if you give them money you know what will they do with it there's a judgment that they will somehow spend it on the wrong thing a number of times i've met someone who's not who's sleeping rough in muswell hill and i've literally walked to costa coffee and bought them a coffee it's warm it's drink it's something that's comforting and i I say hello and ask them a bit and they won't want to tell you all their story we also have to understand they're human beings they're equal in that respect they might not want to all tell you their story but yeah to be able to relate to them as humans just like anyone the homelessness can affect anyone it's interesting you said because i've met a homeless person who told me one of them not to give him money that he would much rather sit down and have a meal or talk about something or be given food yeah, and that might not be everyone. And I think, you know, something I know we do at Muswell Hill Synagogue is we have a winter night shelter. So we will have a shelter every Tuesday night through the winter where we have 12 people who are homeless. And we're really, you know, it brings a lot of volunteers together. And there we're doing some real work to be able to, to have those conversations, talk to people, give them a, a hot meal. And they go in the morning with a pat lunch and, and hopefully find some work or find some hope after. 
Well, it's marvellous what you do, and I hope that hearing what you say, that there'll be many people listening who will want to go and do the same sort of thing that you are doing and helping the homeless. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, and I hope two people do become more aware, more active, and, and always are free to contact me to, to grow what we're doing. It really is important work. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, we've got something new for you in 2020. We're used to hearing from our Jewish domestic goddess, Denise Phillips, around the time of the High Holy Days and Passover, but now we're embracing our food culture on a monthly basis. Denise will give us a taste, see what we did there, of something on every episode. And so, let's get our very first serving, pun intended, of Denise now. Denise, what have you got for us this month? So for this month, not only is it a new year, but it's a new decade. And I'd like to share some culinary ideas of what we may be eating according to UK nutritionists. Food trends affect the food manufacturers restaurants, and of course, your everyday cooking and eating habits. So what are we going to be enjoying 2020? More plant-based protein options. Kosher brands like Meatless Farm are coming up with more meat-mimicking products. Meat-free mints, meat-free sausages, and meat-free burgers. Their marketing strapline is meat-free, but not taste-free. Protein powders and plant-based protein drinks will be on the increase. Whole foods will be more popular. Good examples include mung beans, hemp seed, pumpkin seed, avocado, watermelon and golden corella as protein sources as they offer a spectrum of plant-based amino acids. Eating less red meat. Restaurants and food companies are responding accordingly with more veggie options. There is a trend towards more plant-based eating, but not plant-based exclusive. While there's an influx of vegan options hitting the shelves, there is also an increase in plant-based eating for omnivores and flexitarians. Some food companies are including 30% more vegetables into meat products like burgers called a blend burger. There'll be a new era of mocktails, while dry January is a popular way to start the year on a healthier note. More people are jumping on the booze-free train all year round these days. More brands are introducing alcohol-free spirits, wines and beers to their range. Countless restaurants and bars around the country now have mocktails on their menus. New Tropics, a new term for 2020 in food. This refers to supplements or substances that may improve memory, creativity or motivation in healthy individuals. They come in supplements or drug form. Good examples include turmeric, wild blueberries, salmon, broccoli, walnuts, egg yolks and seaweed. This is because we are living longer and the older generation are keen to maintain good health in their later years, the natural way. There'll be more non-dairy milk alternatives. Vegan beverages are now more readily available in supermarkets and coffee shops across the country. Other vegan milks are becoming more popular. Almond, sunflower, cashew nut, walnut, for example. These non-dairy alternatives would extend to coffee creamers, yogurts, cheeses and ice creams too. So it's goodbye flour and hello to more vegetables. 
Cauliflower pizza and other cauliflower products are becoming a lot more popular with food manufacturers. This is also to cater for more people following a gluten-free diet. And the whole food trend predicts other alternative flours to be incorporated in more packaged foods like seed flours, pumpkin seed flour, seven seed flour, chestnut flour and yam flour. There will be more unprocessed healthy snacks. The refrigerated section of shops will be filled with more wholesome and fresh snacks, hard-boiled eggs with savoury toppings, pickled vegetables, drinkable soups, dippers of all kinds. More protein bars, both with fruit and veggie based, will be available. Other natural sugar is to be used as sweeteners. Medjool dates, raisins, bananas are good examples. And lastly, although the keto diet, the anti-carb regime, has been very popular, the trend is to be more accepting of healthy carb choices to include red lentils, black beans, sweet potatoes, figs and watermelon. So if you may be interested to know that I am doing cookery classes on some of these subjects, gluten-free cooking and fancy vegan. So lots of food for thought, and I wish you a very happy and healthy 2020. Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there with our brand new feature here on The Jewish Views for 2020. More from Denise next month. And don't forget, if you would like more information on anything that Denise was talking about, you can always go to her website, jewishcookery.com. Now it's time for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this time it comes from Rabbi Danny Rich, Senior Rabbi for Liberal Judaism in the UK. Brexit is done, or at least the decision to leave the European Union has been made after a general election which saw an overwhelming victory for advocates of supporting the majority decision of the referendum. Brexit itself was, I suggest, not a Jewish question, but the consequence of what may follow from it may well have an impact on the lives of British citizens and others about which Jewish values may come into play. For example... Any Brexit deal which undermines protection of the climate should be examined with the psalmist's reminder that human beings are charged to steward and care for God's world, not to destroy it. A Brexit arrangement which weakens the protection of child refugees and other members of society ought to be considered in the context of Jewish history, both the ancient past of being slaves in Egypt to the more recent rescue of the kinder transport from the death camps of Nazism. Although Brexit has come to dominate our lives, it is now time to accept the democratic decision, whether one considers it flawed or not, and to turn to the many other challenges which British society faces and about which Judaism has views. Growing inequality of wealth and children living in poverty, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia and racism the quality of schools, the National Health Service and public services, and the appropriate balance between justice and mercy in our policing, courts, prisons and immigration services. The Talmud tells the story of an oven and its suitability. The leading of the scholar they could not persuade his colleagues and so resorted to utilising a moving tree, a river flowing uphill and even an appeal to God. His colleagues, however, remained unmoved. In that story, the rabbinic tradition taught us the values of 
reasoned discussion, majority voting, and even of accepting defeat. For the United Kingdom, now is such a time. To commend polite and informed debate, to affirm majority decision-taking, and to applaud graciousness in defeat, all of which may enable a fractious society to consider the common good and how it might be achieved. Thank you very much to Rabbi Danny Rich, Senior Rabbi of Liberal Judaism for the UK. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to our very own Raymond Simonson, Chief Executive of JW3, telling us about the ice rink and, of course, their winter events here to look forward to at JW3. Thank you also goes to historian Alan Dean. Don't forget about the Petticoat Lane Foxtrot on at JW3 on the 30th of January. Thank you also goes to Kate's guest, Jordan Gorfinkel, or Gorf, telling us about his amazing work in illustration and comics. And also thank you goes to Rabbi David Mason of Marswell Hill Synagogue, telling us about sleeping out in Trafalgar Square to raise awareness of homelessness. And of course, to Denise Phillips, our Jewish domestic goddess. We mustn't forget to thank our producer, Sue Greenberg. And of course, thank you at home for listening. Please do remember you can listen to this or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views again at any time by going to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. Please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. From me, Phil Dave. From me, Kate Fulton. From me, Tony Honigberg. And from me, Clive Roslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.